The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. I thought someone else must have written this novel already. So when I read the passage, I put down the biography and I started Googling to see, has anybody written Lydia Robinson's side of this story? (laughs) Yeah, I I was just so convinced that it it felt so of the moment. Um, And when they hadn't, I... I wrote it like a madwoman. I, I wrote it within six months. My Well, I did a year of research first, but when I actually started writing, I wrote it incredibly quickly. And the whole time I felt like if I didn't do it, somebody Someone else might. Someone would beat you to it. <laughs> yeah, because it's just, it's wonderful fodder for a story. And the Brontes remain so popular and rightly so. And I just thought it was a story the world needed to hear. Mm. That's Fanula Austin talking about the writing of her novel, Bronte's Mistress. She wrote it like a madwoman. It was a story that the world needed to hear. What was that story? We'll hear all about it today on The History of Literature. Hey, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson, your host. Episode 252. I'm still in the afterglow of our big milestone, 250 episodes, and of course, 2 million downloads. Not bad for a plucky little literature podcast. Turns out that people like great books, (laughs) and they like hearing people talk about them. Speaking of which... Our episode on the Brontes is one of the most popular we've ever done. You might remember the discussion of the graveyard in that one. These sisters and their whole family, really, from the father on down, such a vivid family in the history of literature. They are one of literature's treasures. And so when I was given the chance to interview Fanula Austin about her new novel, I jumped jumped at the chance. I'm sure you're going to like this conversation. She came at the Brontes from a slightly different angle from one you might expect. It's from the viewpoint of a slightly older woman, a woman in her 40s who had a romantic interlude with a member of her household staff, a tutor to her children who just so happened to be Branwell Bronte, the dark and mysterious fourth member of the Bronte Quartet the one who was with the girls in childhood and then kind of fell off their train of success while Jane and Emily and Anne wrote novels that eventually made them practically a household name, at least in book-loving households. Poor Branwell fell victim to addiction and a feeling of not having lived up to high expectations. We will have much more about that when Fanula joins us. But first, let's listen to some emails. Oh, excuse me. There's someone knocking at the door here. Hello. Hello. Oh. Oh. It's like Hello. an angel. I'm Elizabeth Bennett. Yes. Star of the novel Pride and Prejudice. The star. Here to deliver a morsel of news. Mr. Darcy and I are expecting. How wonderful. Huzzah to us. Huzzah. However, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a young couple in possession of an infant must be in want of some sleep. Fortunately, our impoverished neighbor, Mr. Jack Wilson, has offered to babysit our beloved little one, so Darcy and I can catch some Zeds. Won't you please support the cause of love, literature, and new life? We shall be eternally grateful for your good sense and your good sensibility. 
Yes. Elizabeth, we can't ever listen to the Brontes without you interrupting, can we? A little bit of territorial marking there from our Lizzie, the star of the novel Pride and Prejudice. Why does that crack me up so much? <laughs> Who is the most likely character in literature to declare themselves the star of the novel that they're in? Would Holden Caulfield introduce himself as the star of the novel The Catcher in the Rye? Probably not. How about Jay Gatsby? Hello, I'm Jay Gatsby, star of the... Well, he wasn't really in a position to do that, was he? Spoiler alert. For some reason, I don't think most characters would want to do that. Who's egotistical enough? If they are, we probably don't like them very much. Or they'd be embarrassed. I'm Hester Prynne, star of The Scarlet Letter. I don't think so. Uh, I'm Moby Dick, star of the novel Moby Dick. Maybe that's the best example, if whales could speak. So, as Lizzie reminds us, you can support the show over at patreon.com slash literature. This week, we are thanking new patron. Oh, boy. We have a bunch this time. We haven't done this for a while. We haven't been begging as often as usual, so the list has piled up. Our thanks to Dorothy Ann, Nicholas, Joel, Cecily, Eamon, or Eamon, Russell, Kathleen, Nicole, Nikita, Corey, Alex, Blake, Thatcher, Joe, Kenneth, Joshua, Paul, Susanna, Michael, and Mary. You truly are my heroes. Many thanks for helping me keep the lights on here at the Jack Wilson Studio. I truly do appreciate it. Speaking of lights, we have some news to announce soon. My hope is that it will lead to some improvements around here. We can't announce it yet, but soon. So let's take a quick break. Come back with a couple of fantastic listener emails. Oh boy, these just get better and better. And then we'll dive into the world of the Brontes and their scandalous ways after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts.
Subject, from a toiling factory worker. Dear Jack, I am reaching out to you, Mike, and guests to express my gratitude for your wonderful podcast. During my time at university, I would often turn to your podcast when roaming the lonely streets of my rented student house in suburbia. After completing my English degree, I have since taken up temporary work in a factory producing face shields for the NHS, 12 hours a day with a two-on, two-off shift pattern. Today it was 35 degrees Celsius in the factory and almost unbearable, but thankfully your wonderful podcast on Beatrix Potter was a much-needed anodyne to the prickly heat. You've helped me to get through these long and arduous shifts. Admittedly, it has been a great excuse to delve back through the archives and enjoy lots of episodes, although I must admit I have many more to savor. As a literature graduate, I love reading, but at points during my degree, I would fall out of love. A lover's tiff, perhaps. Your podcast and your way of encouraging the personal connection to a text has been especially helpful to resolving these moments of disillusionment. Sometimes it is too easy to get stuck in a crisis of critically analyzing texts without stepping back and thinking about our own deeper connection to the text. In this way, I very much enjoy this writerly reading of texts. I do love the range of content that you put out, the literary royales, episodes that focus more on a writer's life, and I especially enjoy when you read texts aloud. The episode on the use of force William Carlos Williams was a great example of this juicy combination of a short but striking story with the analysis that brought me back into seminars at Warwick University, and I almost found myself ready to spring off from some of your ideas. Here's hoping you reach 500 episodes and many more. Best wishes, Declan, your literary factory worker friend from Cambridgeshire, England. Declan. Declan, wow, what an email. I am so glad to hear from you and glad to hear the show has been helping you get through this stage of your life. You are doing an amazing job. It's like a war that we're in and everyone does their part in all sorts of ways. And those 12-hour shifts are saving lives and helping your country and the world get back on their feet. We can't resume anything approaching a normal life until we get the spread of the virus contained and until we get these those masks and face shields in place, both for us and especially for those frontline workers who need them. Thank you for doing your part, and thank you for your email. And hopefully it will be a matter of months until the need subsides. We get this under control, and we can all go back to the world of traveling and visiting with friends and enjoying ourselves and our books in a more carefree way. Next email. Subject, value of literature. Okay, wait, this is me still, Jack. <laughs> Before I read this one, I just want to say, just give a bit of a note to all you 20-somethings out there or teens and 20-somethings, older kids too. Here's the framework I want to set for this email. Here's what this email made me think of. I had a beloved grandfather who grew up in the Depression era and lived through World War II. He lost a brother in that war. He had a brother-in-law who went this was my father's uncle, Uncle Fat, we called him because he was as thin as a rail and tough, too, one of the toughest men I've ever met. He was married to my Aunt Olga, who was one of the softest women I've ever met. Somehow they balanced each other out, but Fat was jaded. He was in the Secret Service, called the OSS back then, the forerunner to the CIA. He was a German language expert, and he was in the groups that arrived in the concentration camps and witnessed that horror firsthand 
contemplating it before the news of the horrors had broken. Imagine the shock of that, of seeing it and taking it in before you've even heard it described. He had photos he had taken when he was there, and he would pull them out and say, look at what these bastards did. Just look at it. Just look at it. He helped veterans. He volunteered at the VA. This experience he had carried through. He had things to say, but often no one to say them to. But he had experiences and memories and wisdom from those experiences and just life lessons to absorb. And I spent a lot of time with that generation, my grandparents and their brothers and sisters, and that generation sadly is gone now, mostly. But when I was in my 20s, they were there, and there was nothing better than to listen. Nothing better for him, and nothing better for me. And now, the next generation is up. That's how life works. It's hard for me to believe it, but the Vietnam-era generation is close to the age that my Uncle Fat was in those years. They saw a lot, too. They learned a lot about America, about the world, about war, about life about human beings. It's a great storehouse of wisdom and experience and humor and humility and pride. If you're lucky enough to know someone who is that age, talk to them, listen to them, soak it up, soak it all up, hear what they have to say. Okay, here's the email. Subject, value of literature. Jack, at the NATO summit protests in Chicago in 2014, James Foley spoke to us veterans who were gathered to protest the summit. James had quit his job as a high school teacher and coach to follow his passion to be a journalist. He went to cover the war in Syria in 2012 and was captured by the Islamic State and eventually released. Two weeks after speaking to us, he went back to Syria and was captured again and beheaded. I cherish his words from the protest that show why literature is so important. James said that the first thing that needs to be done before one can wage war is to designate the enemy as other. As Rutger Bergman points out in Humankind, A Hopeful History, contact with one's fellow human beings makes it difficult to designate them as others. It did not take long when I got to Vietnam to realize that I had more in common with the designated enemy than I did with those who sent me to war. Luckily, I was assigned as the officer in charge of an isolated radio site and only saw my commander twice during my one-year tour. I sort of went native and was engaged to a young Vietnamese for six months of my tour. That never worked out due to the failure to overcome the obstacles to obtain a visa for her, but I was able to travel with her and fully realize that the Vietnamese were not others. Literature is a more easily accessible mode of contact with people to prevent viewing them as others who do not matter. Besides encouraging one to access literature, your podcast removes some of the potential downsides of some literature by placing the writings in context. The Cherokee Nation has a great story that shows why literature could have a negative influence. An elder tells his grandson that there are two wolves in each of us, fighting. One wolf represents that which is good, and the other that which is evil. After thinking about the story for a while, the grandson asks his grandfather, which wolf wins? The grandfather replies, the one you feed. I do not want to feed the evil wolf, so I appreciate it when you explain the context of literature 
that could feed the evil wolf. Your podcast on Faulkner removed the possibility of feeding the evil wolf for me. As a tripwire vet, I did not trust myself after I got back from Vietnam and removed myself from society for a few years, which I could do here on the farm. As I sail through the sea of literature, I might come, acro- I might come upon the island of the sirens. Your explanations of the context of the literature can do the service of tying me to the mast like Odysseus, so I do not have to put wax in my ears. Hopefully, if society has enough contact through literature and other means, we can reach the state that a local writer, Carl Sandberg, whose ashes lie under Remembrance Rock, along with his wife's ashes a few miles from here, wrote about in his poetry, The People, Yes. A little girl in the poem says, Sometime they'll give a war and nobody will come. Keep up your efforts to help that little girl's imagining come true. Paul. Mm. Paul, what a beautiful email. What a beautiful life. A long, hard, full of experience life. This is the kind of spirit that sustains me, the spirit that you have. That story from the Cherokee Nation is not one I had heard before, but I love it. That's how I, I've come to view the world, I think, without having the metaphor to crystallize it for me. For me, the epiphany came when I read Simone de Beauvoir's book, The Second Sex, back in college, and I encountered the phrase, the oppressor becomes the oppressed. And I just thought, there it is. There it is. There's my truth. You can fight against it all your life. You can look for news that supports your position, that justifies your anger and your resentment, that tells you that you're not wrong. It's everyone else who's wrong, that you are the best, that you are right, that it's good to hate, that it's okay, that other people deserve that hate from you. Oh, they're suffering? Well, they deserve it. They deserve what they get. They made life choices or someone made choices on their behalf. You can tell yourself that your whole life. And you can teach it to your kids and your grandkids. And when people call you a hypocrite or a liar or a misogynist or a racist, you can say, well, the problem is you. The problem is you're too sensitive. The problem is you're censoring me or canceling me or you're too weak or you're too whiny or all those other ways people seek to justify their own greed and selfishness and small-mindedness. You can be that person, but then you are that person. What kind of life will you lead if you feed that wolf? What kind of inner life will you have? What kind of outlook on life will you have? Will you be the best person you can be? Will you be kind, generous, joyous? Will you have as much love inside you? Or will you be cramped and small and tight and defensive in a crouch? There's a freedom that comes from facing the world with honesty and with a sense of your own shortcomings and from recognizing the genuine suffering of others and doing what you can to prevent it. The freedom is that you can express yourself with love and sympathy and empathy. You can give. You don't need to be in that crouch, defensive, snarling. You don't need to lie. You don't need to hate. I don't hate anyone, period. I haven't starved the evil wolf, but he's pretty scrawny, and that's how I want it to be. Meanwhile, the good wolf is thriving. He's like a lion now, this wolf inside me. He's Aslan. He's my great, beautiful beast, ready to roar. But it's up to you which wolf you're going to have in you. Your choice is yours. Let me say this. I know some of you will write angry reviews of this podcast based on these remarks. Fine. I've accepted that. I had a nice five-star average for a long time. Talking about empathy has not been good for my average. 
Angry people write hostile reviews. I get it. Or I don't really get it, but I've accepted it. But if that's your response to fire off an angry email, aren't you kind of proving my point? If you listen to a podcast about literature, a subject which is all about empathy, and the host says it's good to be empathetic, and you hear that as, oh, there goes Jack getting political again, what does it say about the way that you look at the world? It's astonishing to me that I don't have to mention the name of a politician or a candidate or a political party, and people feel singled out. They feel attacked. If I say, let's have love in our hearts, and you view that as a political statement, as an attack on your worldview, and it makes you angry enough that you want to write a negative review or send me an angry email telling me how I just don't get it, well, I guess my view of you is that you have a pretty warped view of the world. Maybe it's time for you to follow the Mike Palindrome method of abandoning news and turning to novels instead. Okay, that's enough. Paul, good luck to you on your farm. And thank you for the email, which made me think and gave me hope. And now, let's take one more break, and then we'll turn to the world of the Brontes and our guest today, novelist Finula Austin. Okay, joining me now is Fanula Austin, author of the new novel Bronte's Mistress, which has been described as, quote, catnip for English majors and historical fiction at its best, end quote. The book centers around the incredible Bronte family with a focus in particular on the lone brother, Branwell, whose intense brilliance was matched only by the ferocity of his personal demons. Fanula Austin, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. So let's start with you. What is your background with the Brontes? Yeah, so I grew up like lots of um, eventual English majors, um, reading the works of the Bronte sisters. Mm. Um, pretty mm -hmm. stereotypically, Jane Eyre was my first um, Bronte book. Yeah, And I think I was actually so young, it was read to me. Um, my mother was wonderful about reading bedtime oh, wow. stories to yeah. my sister and to me. So I was probably very young. Um, maybe only seven or eight the first time I heard Charlotte's words. Um, and I grew up reading her um, other books as well. I studied Wuthering Heights while in high school. I read Anne's novels too. Um, and at the same time, I just really developed a love for all Victorian literature. We had a lot of Charles Dickens in the house. Um, mm. In my teens, I really loved the depressing mood of Thomas Hardy novels. Um, yeah. 
And <laughs> later, by the time I was at university, I'd moved on to some of the more scandalous Victorian sensation fiction. So lots of Wilkie Collins um, and Mary Elizabeth Braddon, who's a great novelist who I think is often unfairly overlooked. Yeah. What do you think is so appealing about those books for people of that age? Is it the plot and the character or can you do you remember what it was that appealed to you so much about that era? Yeah, well, I think first up, I think they appeal to people of all different ages. And what we see in the 19th century is really an explosion of novel writing. Um, the novel really appears in the 18th century, but it's in the 19th that it comes into its own. Mm -hmm. And I think that really coincides with increased literacy, especially in Britain. Um, so we see popular fiction really emerging for the first time. Um, a lot of people know about the serialization of Dickens's novels and some of his contemporaries. This was the great evening entertainment. People were waiting around for the next mm, episode. Yeah. Even if they couldn't read, um, maybe the mother of the household, the sister, um, was reading to them by candlelight. And so everyone's speculating on what's going to happen next. It, it feels like our modern TV obsession right? Um, where everyone's like, what's going to happen next on um, Game of Thrones? And even though we've switched to binge watching, there are those shows that can keep us guessing with all of their twists and turns. Mm. And especially the Victorian sensation novel, which is something I love, is so plot driven. The plots become totally ridiculous, but they are really designed <laughs> to keep you guessing about what's going to happen next and give you those kind of twists that we now see in um, domestic suspense. I think about Gone Girl and similar books in those genres. Right. Um, so I think the root of so many genres is in the 19th century. And um, especially for young women who are growing up reading, this is really a period where we see women's voices start to emerge for the first time. And Jane Eyre, I think, is so compelling because it does start with her as a child. Hmm. There's a lot about her childhood that's very alien, I think, to a lot of our experiences. But there are also themes that resonate um, for many young girls who are growing up and finding solace in books, um, whether because they have an unhappy family situation or just gives them an escape into another reality. And so I think as a teenager and as a child, those were some of the things I was really responding to. Yeah. Do you recall being aware of them as a family and, and learning anything about them as sisters? Or was that part of your experience when you were reading them or were they coming to you separately? Yes. Yeah, so I remember which Bronte biography was the first one I read. I, I think I must have been in my mid-teens, say 14 or 15. And I, mm -hmm. I read The Dark Quartet, um, mm. which is by Lynn Reed Banks, um, who wrote some children's books as well. So I, I, I guess that this one was for adults. Um, she wrote The Indian in the Cupboard, for instance, which is a classic children's book. Um, and I was really moved by their story as well. I was on the cusp of that moment where you're coming out of childhood and into adulthood. And that's a moment when for so many, they really move away from their imaginative lives. Um, mm -hmm. They stop imaginative play. And the Brontes didn't do that. So not only were they intelligent and talented and educated, um, but they continued to play into adulthood. And a lot of that was because of the depth of their sibling bond. Mm. And so this quartet, really stood out to me and particularly the two pairings um they seem to very much divide especially in youngsters into two pairings based on their ages which makes sense right. so charlotte and branwell were very much a pair 
um, they created their own fictional world between them. Um, and Emily and Anne did the same. And those worlds of Angry and Gondal um, really were the first setting for a lot of their stories. And you see a lot of the themes being carried through. Uh, and I think in that period, I also read some of that juvenilia, which, you know, I think when you read it, you feel like you're invading something private, like it's yeah. quite bizarre. Um, <laughs> the themes are there, but this is a world that's been built up over years and over a developmental period as well. So you see some of the naivety and the childishness um, along with the virtuosic, virtuosic talent that especially Charlotte Bronte had. So I found that really compelling. Right. Did you have an awareness of Branwell? I guess you would have from the Dark Quartet. It sounds like it covered him as well as the more famous sisters. Yes, that was probably my first introduction to Branwell. And I was aware of the kind of 20th century ridiculous rumors where some people had claimed that he was the writer of Wuthering Heights. Mm. Um, there's no evidence to support this. It's a pretty crackpot um, claim, especially since everything we know about Branwell was that he was an alcoholic and an opium addict who aren't known for being um, very productive writers. Um, but I think this fits into a dangerous narrative that writers um, should be drunks or that um, drinking and drugs help your writing. Mm. Um, when, of course, anyone with direct... Um, experience of being an addict or living with one um, knows that it can be very difficult for people to, you know, even complete the most basic functions and function in their lives, right. let alone complete such a wonderful work of literature. So that was the first time I came across him with people's theories saying, oh, a woman couldn't have possibly written with such passion and which and with such ferocity, mm. uh, especially in relationship to Emily. Right. There's another rumor that I wanted to ask you about, which is that he's sometimes portrayed as being jealous of his sister's success. Is there anything to that that you were able to find? Yeah, I think that's something that's so compelling about sibling relationships, right? You yeah. see people who are similar with so many shared experiences and yet different, sometimes at a, a very deep level. And then co competitiveness and competition is always part of that dynamic. And from the anecdotes we have about the Bronte's childhoods, we definitely see that competition being there between Charlotte and Branwell. Even in the naming of they got these toy soldiers and they each claimed one for their own. And um, Branwell's was Bonaparte, um, whereas Charlotte's was Wellington, um, which is something that I mentioned in my novel. So they're really setting themselves up as in opposition to each other. Mm -hmm. um, however, Branwell really didn't live to see his sister's success as mm, novelist. Right. And there's a lot of evidence that they essentially hid it from him. Um, the period where they were being most productive and Charlotte was working on The Professor, which was her first completed but last published novel, um, and Anne was working on Agnes Grey and Emily on Wuthering Heights, Branwell was in the depths of despair mm -hmm. at that mm -hmm. moment because of the outcome of his relationship with Lydia Robinson. He was frequently keeping to his bed. He was drunk, taken out of the local pub. He left the home briefly um, to go to Liverpool, which is something that I mentioned as well. So I think that normally writers about the Brontes kind of characterize him as at least semi-oblivious at that point of what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, however, if anyone's been to the Bronte parsonage, it isn't a huge home for how many people were living there. And it seems likely to me that he might have known that they were working on something, even if he didn't know the details. And so in how I characterize him in my novel is as slightly obsessed and worried that especially Charlotte is going to complete something before him. We also know that Branwell was working on his own novel. Um, parts of it survive. 
like his poetry, I don't think it's very good. I include some of Bramwell's poems in my novel verbatim. And I got that question a lot from writers groups and critique partners. People said, did you write these poems? And when I said, oh, no, they're Bramwell's, there was a relief. And they were like, oh, <laughs> they're really bad. I'm like, I, I know that they are bad. And um, the talent that you see there um, in Anne's poetry and Emily's uh, is lacking, I think. Mm. Right. Although he did seem to have a, I don't know if it was jealous about the success. It sounds like he, he was already kind of far gone to, to sort of resent their publishing success. But he does seem to have had a feeling that he squandered his talent or that he uh, didn't, uh, you know, fulfill anything that he had hoped to accomplish. Maybe we should just back up a little bit and tick through. I've got some facts about him. Uh, that I'm sort of familiar with. And part of this was a visit to the home that I took last summer. But, you know, I don't have a great sense of his personality. So let me sort of tick through what I know here. He was a painter and a poet. He translated the classics. Uh, he was tutored by his father, unlike his sisters, which I thought was kind of interesting. But otherwise, he really was surrounded by women, especially these uh, sisters of his. His eldest sisters, the two eldest, uh, Maria and Elizabeth, died before he turned eight. Um, but as you say, he does have this active imagination along with the three younger girls, and he was part of the role-playing games with Charlotte. And And then his adult life, other than we'll talk about this this uh, job he took as a tutor, but really what's come down to me through uh, you know my understanding of Branwell is really one of a kind of sadness of drug and alcohol addiction. And he spent a lot of time right in their home, in bed, in kind of a delirium. And then uh, he was one of the the three that died all within 12 months of one another, where Emily died in December and died in May. Uh, and he had already died in September of 1848. So, that's kind of a, a thumbnail sketch of his life. What would you? What were you able to find about him? What kind of personality comes through, and what were you able to draw upon in order to find it? Are there letters, or what? What's the source material, and and then what's the portrait of Branwell that we have? Yeah, that's a great thumbnail a sketch. I, I think what I would add to this is the weight of expectation that was clearly mm, placed yeah. on Branwell yeah. as the only boy. Um, and my novel, it does center women's experience um, in the period and how difficult um, their lives were made by a misogynistic society. Um, but of course, I think many of us today recognize that misogyny is very bad for men too. And I see Branwell's fate as kind of as an exemplar of that. Hmm. Um, he was the one set on a pedestal. He was the one who was meant to succeed and had the weight of the family's expectations on his shoulders. And so when you see him go out to London to try to become a painter and then come home a failure and then take a much less glamorous job at the railway and get dismissed for drinking on the job hmm. and finally take this job as a humble tutor to a 10 year old, despite, um, how learned he clearly was and how imaginative. And then, of course, have that end in disaster with this sexual affair. You really see that Branwell had had fallen a long way from what was expected of him. Yeah. Whereas the women on the other side, very little is expected of them. Mm. Um, 
marriage, yes, but none of the Bronte sisters were well set up for that. They weren't um, stereotypically beautiful. Um, they had no money to their name. And so the list of things that were open to them was very short and governess was one of the things on the list. Branwell had many more opportunities, um, but perhaps we could see him as a, a victim to thinking about that and everything that had been placed on him. As you say, his two elder siblings had died. Um, so he was originally fourth in the birth order and then became second uh, after Charlotte, wow. after they died. And their mother um, had also passed away before that. So she died when Anne, the youngest, was still a baby of ovarian cancer. Hers was a very slow and painful death, which I think affected the family in a huge way that has been pretty overlooked. I would really recommend there's been a recent biography of that original Mar Mariah Branwell, later Bronte, hmm. um, called Mother of the Brontes, which does a really great job in sketching out her early life in Cornwall and the effects of her love of stories, for instance, on her children, despite her early death. Right. And then what we really see is the daughter named for her, Mariah. Um, she really takes on that mothering role, even though she's a very young child. And Branwell does look up to her as the mother figure. And mm. so in my novel, I have him sharing those memories of she was the one teaching him how to pray. She was the one really giving him that maternal comfort. And then, of course, she dies as well, um, as does Elizabeth, the second sister. And then that leaves Charlotte as the oldest. And she and Branwell are incredibly close in age. Um, right. Poor Mariah Branwell slash Bronte. So many children. So I think it's important to kind of have that sketch of the family life into which they were born. And I think the Reverend Bronte did a lot for all his children. It's true that in a stereotypical fashion, he did prioritize the education of the boy, um, but he was very open to his daughters being educated too. He didn't limit their access to books. Um, he was happy for them to have academic pursuits, which I think marks him out as pretty progressive um, for a clergyman of the period. Mm -hmm. But he was also a man who had lost the love of his life, um, the mother of his six children. And I think we can see the long-term impact on him and some of the choices he made, especially with sending the oldest to school and maybe not removing the girls soon enough when it became clear that the school they were at was terrible for their health. Right. Um, so that's kind of the background piece. In terms of how I got to Branwell, my novel really does center Lydia Robinson, um, who was the older woman who had an affair with um, the boss's wife. And so I was interested in Bramwell and himself, but I was particularly interested in Bramwell in how he might appear to Lydia. Mm. So I kind of had this view of Bramwell as, and this may sound harsh, but a little bit pathetic, mm -hmm. right? Like a lot of sad things has happened to him, but he didn't seem to have the strength of character that especially Charlotte had. Um, he made a lot of very bad choices and a lot of very irresponsible choices. And even in his own letters, you see that flippancy in how he talks. Um, one of the biggest pieces of evidence we have about the Lydia Branwell affair is that very early in his time working for the family, he writes the letter to a friend boasting that my mistress is damnably too fond of me. A few months later, he boasts about having a lock of her hair. Mm. Um, he's a man who seems to really want to flatter his own ego and um, have others look up to him. Right. But for Lydia, I saw her as a, you know, bored woman whose husband is not having sex with her, who has no option of divorce. And Branwell is 25. She's 43. Right. Um, like most 25-year-olds, he looks better than a 40-year-old, um, like her husband, who is going to fat and having health problems and potentially um, suffering from impotence is something that I'm suggesting here. And 
on top of that, Bramwell does have this imagination and he talks the talk very well. Mm. So I have them going to Shakespeare together, reading Shakespeare together, speaking about music. And really importantly to me, I have one conversation that passed between them where he seems to be talking about passages we might recognize from Wuthering Heights. So he talks about um, two souls finding each other um, that are made of the same matter. And he's using it to flirt with Lydia. And then he has this throwaway line where he says, Emily and I have mentioned it often. And so that for me is a joke that he's actually stealing Emily's ideas um, in order to flirt with Lydia versus the other way around. Right. Um, and so I think it takes time for Lydia to see him for who he is. Um, a lot of alcoholics are high functioning and there is a scene where she sees him um, nearly passed out drunk for the first time that really shakes her attraction to him. Mm. Um, much later in the novel, when he's descended even more, she starts to see him as a child and is a little bit pathetic. And that's where her sexual interest in him evaporates. Um, so right. really her experience was at the center and I saw Branwell, but also the other male characters as almost unknowable ciphers to Lydia. Um, she's so cut off from male circles. A lot of the men in the novel, including Branwell Bronte, are Freemasons. So they go to the local lodge. That's true. Branwell was a member of the Masonic Order and was part of that in Haworth and in the Great and Little Usbin area. So that's something she could never be a part of. Um, her husband, her father, other men go off to university. And that's their link to the Reverend Bronte, actually. That's potentially why Anne and then Branwell got these positions. But she's never going to be able to go to Cambridge. Men have these early sexual experiences that are shut off from women. They might um, meet with prostitutes or working class women. So by the time they're married, they're more experienced than the virginal upper middle class brides that they marry. Mm. And so all of the men are kind of mysterious and dangerous to Lydia. And it is true that in the novel, it's her experience and the experience of the other women that I really put in the primary position. But it was important to me not just to make the men cardboard cutouts or terrible brutes, I wanted to suggest that they were suffering too. Right. So in her husband Edmonton's case, perhaps he is suffering with health issues that make him unable to have sex. And it's not an age where he can get Viagra. So what does he do? He withdraws. He doesn't talk to his wife. He's ashamed. Branwell, mm. maybe he doesn't feel like he's a talented his sister. Maybe he feels the weight of too much expectation and is worried he'll never live up to that. What does he do? He turns to drink. And I think that's so true of so many men who don't share their problems and their issues and take on really unhealthy coping mechanisms. So while the story is more Lydia's than Branwell's, that certainly is the other side of the coin that I wanted to be reflecting. Right. And so she, here she is. Uh, Lydia has these needs. She's not, uh, I think you have some teenage daughters who are rebelling and a mother-in-law who's a burden. I don't think we've mentioned that yet. Mm -hmm. And she's in this marriage that's grown, grown cold. Branwell shows up. He's there to be a tutor. He's young. He's kind of well-equipped, probably, because of his experience with these women. He probably knows how to talk to her and, and has some, uh, his imagination and, and everything makes him particularly able to unlock her in a way, um, you know, her personality and, and to get her to open up. At the same time, he's a drifter. He's kind of headed for trouble. And it seems like he's clearly in this position where He's looking for something, and he's someone who's grown up with this absence in his life of his mother and his oldest sister, and here's this woman who is old enough to be his mother. So 
That's uh, rich territory for a novel, even setting aside that there are these sisters who I want to get to, too, who are, you know, so famous. And I could imagine you wanting to be careful with how you bring them onto the stage because your readers are going to be uh, uh, excited whenever they hear that Charlotte or Emily or Anne shows up, I think. But um, let's talk about just Branwell and Lydia. What kind of, I I don't want to spoil the novel or have you spoil the novel, but what happens early on? How do they realize that they have feelings for one another and is this something that they have to resist and and uh what do they do to disguise what they're going through yeah i think that's a really great summary i I think i would add to that that just as lydia sees what she needs in that moment in branwell he really gets to fall for an idealized version of her Mm. so i don't see this as a love story i see this as a story all too familiar one about how two people who are often not good for each other um, find something in each other or project something onto each other. And there's a moment where Lydia speaks about that. She speaks about how men are allowed these other vices, um, how they can gamble, um, how they can have whores, how they can um, go hunting and leap over hedges, how they can sit over dinner with their brandy glasses at the end of the day. And as a woman, she gets none of that. Um, even alcohol, it's not decided when, you know, she has to leave the room. That's the decision of the men. Mm. Um, she doesn't get to run around. It's unladylike. And she spends a lot of her time um, complaining that her second daughter is very unladylike because she likes being in the stables and scrapes her knees and runs around too much like a boy. And that's a behavior to be stamped out of her. Mm. So Branwell is really one of the only vices open to Lydia. And as you say, he's kind of looking for this great love that can rival um, the ones he's read about in poetry and novels. Mm, Um, And he sets her up. He talks about her like she's a princess in a tower. He characterizes her husband as a brute, even though Edmund does not seem like a brute from what we see of him. Um, But they're almost kind of casting each other in the roles that they want them to take on. And so a huge thing for me in their early interactions is there's got to be some sort of early transgression of social norms Um, Lydia is the mistress of the house and the title Bronte's mistress is very deliberate. Um, One, it centers her. I didn't call this novel Branwell and Lydia. Um, Mm. It's very much about her. And two, while there is, of course, the sexual suggestion of mistress, she is the mistress of the house. Um, She's the female equivalent of a master. And the relationship is very much on her terms. Mm. And so in the conversation where they first meet, um, she ends up resting her hand on his Um, And she does it as a power play in the context of the conversation that they're having. And it's a pretty shocking moment, um, both for her, who has played by the rules her entire life, marrying like she should have, being the perfectly dutiful wife like she should have, but is now having this kind of moment, especially following the death of her own mother and her young toddler daughter a couple of years before, where she really wants something more. And then, of course, she chooses to try this out on Branwell, who is a man who is very reckless, who Mm. drinks on the job, who spends money with abandon. um, And it's just a terrible match um, in terms of what this is going to lead to. So this is the first moment Um, I have them talk about um, topics that kind of, again, are on the edge of that taboo. One of their early conversations is about the existence or not of God. And religion is so central to the lives of many people in this period, and especially this group of people we're speaking about. Um, The Reverend Bronte was a clergyman. Um, You see in the writings of the Bronte sisters, particularly in Anne, um, how important religion was to them as a family. 
And I have Branwell expressing doubts about the afterlife, especially because of the losses of his mother and older sisters, and mm. in particular that sister Mariah. And here we have Lydia Robinson, who's a woman who has never thought too deeply about religion. She describes it as something that she was just good at as a girl, like crossing her ankles when she sat. Um, so it's just something she's been trained to do versus something that she very deeply believes. And now having been robbed of her beloved youngest child and then her own mother literally the week before the novel starts she is having similar doubts hmm. about is there an afterlife and what am i following the rules for and i followed the rules all of my life and what have i got i have a husband who doesn't love me i have no access to escape it's not like divorce is an option for her and at 43 am i meant to just say that my life is over and so right. those conversations where bramwell i think is just playing to type and flirting in the way that he would where he had a pub with a, a woman much lower down the social hierarchy. Lydia's never spoken to anybody like this before. Hmm. And later they read Shakespeare, they're at the theater, and there's a real passion in those words that's just lacking from her life. So uh, as the book goes on, I, I, I don't want to give too many spoilers, but the affair does become sexual. And that was important for me to characterize it this way because I don't really believe it's a love story. I believe it's a story of lust. I believe it's a story of people grabbing onto each other. Um, mm. There's a reference to when people are drowning, how they tend to grab the person nearest to them and sort of drag them down as well. Mm. And I see them as two very troubled people at this moment in their lives who just happen to meet. And the other thing I want to say is that um, in the five-year period I chose to write about, my novel goes from 1843 to 1848. Um, so it does extend beyond when Branwell left Fort Green Hall. Um, and we've already mentioned, we know the fates of the Brontes. Mm. Um, he dies within that period too. So I could have chosen to make the novel just about the affair. But again, it was very important to me, how does Lydia move on from this? What does the rest of her life look like? Where Branwell and of course his sisters are lurking in the background and come up again a few times. Um, but it really is Lydia's story and how does a woman make her own way in the world, especially when she herself is widowed. Right. So Mrs. Gaskell, who was a, an early biographer of Charlotte, uh, refers to Lydia as a profligate woman who tempted Branwell into the deep disgrace of a deadly crime. Uh, is a very, um, you know, striking description of Lydia. It, it sounds like you don't necessarily disagree so much with that as to say that it's it's really one-sided, that, that giving Lydia's point of view would be important in order to understand who she is. Well, I think it's a description that very much um, showcases a sexual double standard, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so women who transgress are profligate, they're wretched, um, and they're always in the wrong, right? And yeah. she said, in this case, the man became the victim, which I thought was really interesting because, especially since Mrs. Gaskell wrote novels herself, like Ruth, which was about, you know, poor teenage girls who were tempted and ended up pregnant and alone. Here, she kind of cast Branwell in that victim role. Right. I mean, I... I I struggle with this a lot um, because I think you can be judgmental of people who commit adultery today because there are other options open to them. Um, like they can end their marriage if they are unhappy. Um, mm. But what was Lydia to do? I, I don't think it makes her profligate um, right. to want a sex life. I don't think it makes her wretched to want something more than the lot that's been given to her. And her entire life has been how to get a husband. And when you have a husband, how to have a son. And then nothing, 
she's kind of spent, she's done with, and that's how she feels. I mean, the poor woman can't even use hair dye. Um, so in her early 40s, she's really feeling the aging process. And today she could, you know, go to the salon, um, she could get some therapy, um, she could get a job, um, whereas none of those things are really open to her. So I, I think it's very hard for us to look back and sit in judgment over people who were really trapped by society. Like, not only can she not vote, she doesn't even own any of her own property. She can't just turn around and say, I'm going to leave tomorrow. And there's a streak of pragmatism in Lydia that makes her very different from Bramwell. Bramwell is an idealist all through and through. And that often means that he ends up with no money, um, that he ends up being a burden on his family and especially on his sisters and father. Mm. Lydia, on the other hand, she holds it together, even though she also has this tumultuous inner life. She's learned that society is a game that you have to play. And I think that's so true for many women of the period and not just in the period too, but they learn that they have to act in a certain way to perform in a certain way um, in order to get ahead in life. And she tries to impart those lessons to her daughter too. Right. So I definitely didn't want to make Lydia a saint. And I think she does a lot that we may disagree with, um, in particular in her parenting choices. Um, I mean, for one, parenting doesn't even emerge as a verb until the late 20th century. So there were very different attitudes about it. But she tries to really give her daughters some tough love and prepare them for the realities of what women's lives were like. And I think a lot of readers may want her to be a bit softer and kinder and more forgiving with them. Um, but when I read Mrs. Gaskell's depiction, it just struck me as such an 1857 um, mm. way to think. Yeah. And I really, I thought someone else must have written this novel already. So when I read the passage, I put down the biography and I started Googling to see, has anybody written Lydia Robinson's side of the story? <laughs> and, and yeah, right. I, I was just so convinced that it, it felt so of the moment. Um, right. And when they hadn't, I I wrote it like a mad woman. I, I wrote it within six months. My Well, I did a year of research first, but when I actually started writing, I wrote it incredibly quickly. And the whole time I felt like if I didn't do it, somebody Someone else might. Someone would beat you to it. <laughs> yeah, because it's just, it's wonderful fodder for a story. And the Brontes remain so popular and rightly so. And I just thought it was a story the world needed to hear. Oh, that's so great. It reminds me of those stories of, you know, Paul McCartney waking up with the, the song yesterday in his head and thinking it's so complete and so perfect. He must have heard it somewhere. And he runs around <laughs> asking people, you know, where did I hear this? I don't want to plagiarize it. And then it turns out that it was actually in his mind. Uh, you, It must be great to write a novel where you don't have to doubt yourself that your project is worthy if you feel that strongly about, uh, you know, the subject and, and how compelling it is to be a novel. Yes, I, I think it is like an infatuation. And one thing that's happened is since I did get the book deal, people keep telling me cool historical stories, which is great. Um, mm. So people tell me random factoids about buildings in New York or something in their hometown or some <laughs> woman I've never heard of. And then they follow up with, you should write a book about it. This should be one of your next books. <laughs> And that's, right. it's great. I, I'm never going to complain about hearing interesting stories, but it's not enough for something to be interesting. It needs to be so compelling to you personally that you can live with it for years. I mm. mean, I read that Gaskell biography in fall 2016. I did a full year of research setting all of our projects aside from that point on. I, I wrote it in six months, then took a research trip, then edited more and more. I got my agent that summer. We sold the book the following spring. And then that was spring of 2019, the book coming out in August 2020. So that means at this point, it's four years since I read that Gaskell biography. 
And that's quick in publishing terms, though for normal people, that does not feel quick. But that's four years of my life that I've been living with Lydia. Mm, um, yeah. And that can't just be an interesting anecdote. It needs to be something that really sets you on fire. And there was something about this story that really set me on fire. And I think part of it was how long I'd been reading the Brontes. And I love especially Charlotte Bronte's writing. I mm. think she was a genius. But I also had felt for a while that she didn't have a high level of empathy for other women. Um, mm, many okay. of her heroines are poor, plain, young, and virginal. And Lydia Robinson was everything that Charlotte Bronte resented. Yeah. She was wealthy and had been beautiful and older, more experienced, and sexually experienced as well. She'd given birth to five children, four of whom lived. And so that's the kind of heroine we don't see in a Charlotte Bronte novel. Right. And I guess I'd been grappling with this for a while, that this idea of what's a good feminist? And a good feminist is like maybe somebody like a Charlotte Bronte who martyrs themselves and stays silent and you know doesn't marry. And of course, Charlotte did, and it ended up indirectly causing her death because she died in the early mm. months of pregnancy a few years after her siblings. Um, but the truth is that most women in the 19th century and most women even now are not fighting against the system. They are part of what holds the system together. And right. Lydia suffers from misogyny, but she also perpetrates it. And I'm not saying she's a good feminist. Um, for instance, she is very unaware about her own privilege as a white woman. Um, she references um, how she's delighted at manumission and is against slavery. She just says that to make a good impression at a dinner party. Mm. So today we might say that she's virtue signaling. She doesn't think about the labor that went into producing her beautiful Indian shawls. She compares herself to a slave going to the galleys when she just has to go to a luncheon she doesn't like. So she definitely has her blind spots and is less than sympathetic, especially to her servants and right. to Anne Bronte. But that doesn't mean that she isn't suffering too. And that doesn't mean that the way society was set up wasn't keeping women like her down. Right. And I actually dedicated the novel to the women who didn't write their novels because that was so important to me is the Brontes were the exception. Mm. They were wonderful, brilliant exceptions. But most women who lived through the 19th century, they didn't think there's another way for the world to be. They just dealt with the realities of the law that life had given them. Right. So the sisters also have this uh, side of them where they're kind of protective of their brother. Where? How do they fit into your narrative? What's their relationship with Lydia? Yeah. So Anne Bronte actually started to work for Lydia and for the family a few years before Branwell did. So mm -hmm. she arrived at the house in the May of 1840, and then Branwell arrives in the January of 1843, so nearly three years later. So Anne is the sister who's most on stage, as it were, in my novel. She's a very major character, and her relationship with Lydia is, to put it mildly, pretty strained. Mm. Um, I think that's often true for people who have someone else in their home looking after their children. There can be a conflict, right? And there is um, a conflict I have between them, which is mirrored on a scene in Agnes Grey, which was meant to be pretty autobiographical from Anne, um, where Lydia really feels that Anne Bronte doesn't watch her children with a mother's care. And that it's all very well for Anne to be nice to them, but that's because she doesn't love them and isn't telling them about the harsh realities of their life. I also have some backstory where Lydia has found a letter of Anne's um, 
back home to Charlotte, in which she describes her in unflattering terms. And those terms are taken from Agnes Gray and from the character that many believe is based on Lydia Robinson, the character mm. of Mrs. Murray. So I really took those and said, well, Anne could have described her in this way earlier in her own private letters. And so I have that as being a source of animosity between them. Of course, Lydia shouldn't have been reading the governess's letters, um, but it's mm. too tempting to resist <laughs> when you see your name on a piece of paper. <laughs> right. So, so that's kind of, I, I see them as very different. Anne Bronte is super docile, religious, and quiet, but I have her as pretty judgmental. Mm -hmm. And I think it's hard when you have someone in your home in that kind of governess or nanny role to see them standing in the corner, standing over you in judgment all the time must be very grueling. Yeah. And so that's how Lydia feels, um, especially because she kind of sees that she says that Anne Bronte didn't have a mother to guide her, right? Like she's like, mm -hmm. oh, it's bad for you that nobody told you, but to get on in the world, you have to be attractive to men. You have to find a husband and I'm just trying to do the best for my daughters. Right. So that's kind of Anne. And of course, Anne starts to suspect that something is going on between her brother and Lydia. And like any defensive sister, blames Lydia entirely, mm -hmm. even though Branwell is equally to blame. Yeah. With the other two sisters, Charlotte is the most important um, to me in the novel, even though she actually only features directly in one scene, um, but she's always there in the background. Mm -hmm. And that's because I really see the book as more than anything, a response of mine to Charlotte and to the way she judges other women in her books. Um, even as a young child reading Jane Eyre, I worried about Blanche Ingram, this kind of other beautiful woman who Jane hates. Right. I'm like, well, Blanche is just trying to do the right thing too. Isn't she meant to marry a guy like Rochester? Like, why yeah. is Jane Eyre so unsympathetic to this woman who, okay, is more attractive and has nicer clothes, but essentially is in the same predicament? Right. And so Charlotte actually becomes an obsession of Lydia's through the novel. Branwell is always mentioning how clever she is. He mentions her aspirations to be a writer. And it starts Lydia thinking, has anybody ever called me clever? I've been called beautiful. I've been told I've been well-behaved. I've been praised for all these superficial things, but what am I on the inside? Yeah. And I think that really coincides with her beauty fading away um, as she starts, you know, her hair goes gray and she notices the odd wrinkle. Yeah. I mean, she's only 43. Let's not overstate it. She's definitely not ancient. Right. Um, and so Charlotte becomes an obsession in the background. She asks Branwell questions about her. Sometimes she feels like she's more obsessed with Charlotte than she is Branwell. And I think that rings very true to me that there are women who seem to get into other women's heads and they have a strange sense of competition with, even if they barely know them. Mm -hmm. um, and that's definitely the Lydia-Charlotte dynamic. The other part of this is that Charlotte starts, or Lydia starts to see herself as having kinship with Charlotte because Branwell mentions um, that Charlotte has fallen in love with a married man. Mm. And that is true that Charlotte did fall for her professor at a school in Brussels and was very lovelorn for a few years. Um, there's no evidence that there was an affair, like there is between Branwell and Lydia, but Lydia starts to think, oh, this clever, brilliant woman, Charlotte, can fall in love with someone she's not meant to as well. Maybe we're similar, mm. um, which of course is a similarity that I don't think Charlotte herself um, would agree with, which is something that happens later. Right. Um, so Charlotte was very important to me throughout the novel and right up to its final pages and its final lines. Emily, I did keep a little bit more in the background. Um, Emily very much is the mysterious sister. The least is known about her. Um, she only wrote the one novel as well as her poetry. So we have less in her own words. And there is some evidence that her next novel, you know, she burnt it um, before she died because she wasn't happy with it. Mm. Um, 
And so I have a lot of references to Emily loving the Moors, being a nomad, being a little like a gypsy and how she wanders across the landscape. Um, and yeah, that's how I depict her as kind of the romantic one that nobody ever sees. Right. And even when Charlotte and Anne finally had to tell their publishers who they were because they were writing under these pseudonyms of the Bell brothers, it was only Charlotte and Anne that went to London. Emily utterly refused to see their publisher. Um, she never saw London. She never enjoyed any celebrity. She very much was a homebody who wanted to stay home, who loved the Moors, who loved kind of managing the household for her father. And so it makes sense to me to kind of keep her in the background, um, but with some fun references to Wuthering Heights. So if there's anyone reading who Emily is their favorite sister, there are certainly some nods towards her novel in there, even though she herself is not foregrounded. Did you feel at all like, I, I don't think we mentioned, the book is told in the first person from Lydia's point of view, and you really, you know, have to inhabit a, a mindset of her encountering uh, these sisters and their influence on Branwell and just their presence or, uh, you know, the, her awareness of them. Did you feel after you were finished, like you thought differently about the Bronte sisters? Or did you feel like, oh, I'm glad I don't have to be inside Lydia's head anymore. I can just like them again without <laughs> having to feel like they're a threat or or there's, you know, more going on? Yeah, it's really interesting. I When I was in high school, I did some drama and it was similar in feeling. Uh, mm. When I acted as a character in a play, I then found it hard to <laughs> distance myself. So for instance, right. I studied Tennessee Williams' A Streetcar Named Desire at the same time as playing Blanche. And it really affected my critical abilities because mm. I wanted to defend Blanche to the right, hilt right. Um, <laughs> because I really felt for her. And I do think it's probably going to be a while before I can read, not the Brontes themselves, because I saw those as my primary text I was responding to, but other books inspired by the Brontes. I'm reading them still and I'm enjoying them, but it's hard not to compare every artistic choice that's been made with the artistic choices that I made, Right, uh, which is something I'm having to actively fight against. Or even if there is just a reference, I read one recently, I won't name it, but they mentioned Lydia Robinson and her cheap perfume. And I had like a visceral uh, reaction to yeah. it. Yeah, You will um, have, probably have that for the rest of your life that you'll feel yeah, maybe. protective over Lydia. Yeah. Yes. And of course, this book had a totally different focus. I really enjoyed the book, actually. Um, but it was just, you know, in their depiction of Lydia, they'd gone with the Mrs. Gaskell version, which right. is like, oh, this awful older woman sleeping with this young guy and yeah. has cheap perfume as part of that. And just the lack of nuance in that compared to how I thought myself into her head, it kind of hit me. Um, but no, it didn't stop me enjoying the Bronte sisters because I guess I see part of the tragedy of the book is that yes, Charlotte and Lydia do have things in common. She's not wrong, um, but they are very, very different in other ways. And I guess the tragedy of the book for me is that women often do put each other down um, mm. or think there's only one right way to be um, rather than recognizing how it sucks all around. And whether you're beautiful or ugly, it really is terrible to be judged on your appearance, especially mm. if that's something that's going to happen as you grow older, right? right. Um, so even if there's some cause for Charlotte to be resentful of people like Lydia, um, it really doesn't benefit either of them. Mm -hmm. um, and I, when I write, I, I very much believe that every character in a novel has to think that they are the protagonist of the novel. Right. So even though I was writing from Lydia's perspective, I knew what Anne was thinking at every moment and how she would characterize the scene. And with Lydia's daughters as well, I think you could read it, especially Lydia's oldest daughter, who unconveniently is also called Lydia, which was a struggle while writing. Mm. Um, she thinks that she's, you know, the teenage heroine of the book. Um, 
she starts at 16 years old. She's brilliantly beautiful. She's boy crazy. And um, the course of what happened to her life is pretty dramatic as well. So Hmm. for me, that's just a subplot. But Lydia Jr., yeah, she thinks this is her book and she's the main character. And in another retelling of the book, she could be. Right. Okay. I have a surprise bonus question for you. Ooh, yeah, please. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. On a trip to Yorkshire, you're caught in a horrendous rainstorm. As you shelter in a small abandoned house, you hear tremendous explosions all across the moors. When you emerge, you find yourself in the 1840s. Blinking in the sunlight, you look around to see a man in his 20s striding across the landscape. Suddenly, you hear a voice in your head. That's Branwell Bronte, says the voice. He's on his way to Thorpe Green Hall. This is your chance to alter history. You can go and warn him right now not to take the position and avoid Lydia Robinson forever. The voice takes on a sly tone. Or you can follow me to the house. We have access to the attic, and from there you can see and hear everything that happens in the house. You and I can eavesdrop on Lydia and Branwell for as long as you'd like, watching their relationship grow and develop. But if you choose this option, you will merely be an observer with no chance to influence history in any way. Which do you choose and why? I absolutely choose the observer Ah. um, and a couple of different reasons. Um, Okay. Well, one, I think that if you really wanted to alter history and save Branwell, you're already too late. Mm. Um, You might save Lydia, but you know, she did pretty okay anyway. No spoilers here, but you know, the affair did not ruin (laughs) her life. Um, But Branwell, I think you'd need to go way back into his childhood. um, Mm. And at this point, it was very important to me that I had him already be reliant on alcohol. I mean, he'd already lost one job from excessive drinking. So that made sense to me. And uh, Mrs. Gaskell's blaming Lydia for his alcoholism uh, is just totally against everything we know about addiction yeah. and how it works and blaming those who know addicts doesn't help anybody. Right. Um, so there's partly that. And partly I had this conversation last week with somebody about how invisibility is the best superpower. And why would anybody choose anything else? Mm. I, I long to be in rooms without people knowing that I'm there because that's really when you can see what people are like in private. Yeah. And to be that fly on the wall. And of course, who could resist being the slightly mad woman in the attic um, where some Brontes are living, right? <laughs> Do you think, though, that it it may have gotten in your way of what you were able to invent as a novelist? It seems like having some freedom, not having all the facts and the details gave you some freedom to invent in a way that it might not have if you had been uh, watching a lot of their oh, conversations. Oh, yeah. I, I was imagining with this hypothetical that this is after I'd written the novel, because oh, okay. then I would be able to <laughs> enjoy, oh, I was right about that. Ooh, I hadn't thought right. about it this way. And I think especially if I had, you know, pre- predicted feels wrong because it's looking back in time. But if I had guessed anything that happened, I would feel particularly smug. Um, but no, I think the historical fiction is about writing in those gaps that history leaves us. Um, And actually, I detail my research process in my author's note. I was very lucky that my mother is a great research partner. She has a master's in history, Mm. um, and she loves family tree research. So I, and she's also retired. So sometimes when I got stuck, especially with anything family tree related about the servants or Lydia's wider family, I would send her my mysteries. And she was like a Rottweiler that she'd Mm. go after them and come back with what she found. And it was so interesting because she was already always upset um, if there was something she couldn't find out. Whereas I was delighted because as soon as I discovered that nobody could know nobody something, knows. Yeah. 
I could make it up. And it was very important to me that people can't prove that things in my novel didn't happen. Right. But of course, I want the freedom to imagine. I'm a novelist and not a biographer or a historian. Um, so yes, right. I mean, if this happened before I was writing the novel, I don't know. I mean, I might be more interested in hanging around in the local village and hearing what the rumors were about the house mm, and yeah. talking to the servants versus actually being in the room or mm -hmm. eavesdropping on the Lydia Bramwell conversations. Yeah. Um, I guess the closest I come is I do wonder what Lydia Robinson herself or any of my characters would make of this novel. I mean, it is obviously set in the 19th century, but written by a 21st century person. And I, I, I don't know how they would feel about the characterizations of them beyond the accuracy, the message that the book has, what their response to that would be. Right. And every single character in my novel is real. It's not just the important ones of Lydia and Branwell, like every single servant, um, the dog. The only one I made up was the horse. I didn't know the horse's name, so mm. I called him Patroclus. But I would be really interested in what all those kind of servant characters and neighbor characters would think to know that their names and families and histories are living on in this novel, um, you know, nearly two centuries on. Right. Fanula Austin, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you. It was really fun chatting about Branwell and Lydia with you. Mmm. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to my emailers, Declan and Paul, and to all of you good listeners out there. My heart is with you. And my thanks to Fanula for joining me. Her book is available now, people. You should all run out and buy it. Bronte's Mistress. What a great idea for a novel, and what fun it is to jump in and read the story. Seeing the Brontes through the eyes of one of their contemporaries and imagining ourselves in the mind of a 19th century woman who's doing her best, living her life, playing the hand she's been dealt. I will be back soon with some Mike Palindrome and some other goodies we have in the works. In the meantime, please do subscribe and rate and review the podcast. And we are a member of the Podglomerate Network. I think I messed up the URL last time. My apologies for that. It's thepodglomerate.com. You can check them out. And there are other shows there. That's the Podglomerate Network at thepodglomerate.com. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.